Amen. Um, if you, uh, all the kids who are in Roy Jr., you can go out that back door and parents remember to get them afterwards. You can't just leave them. And I'd like to apologize, David, for being one of the ones who was the latest to get my children. So there we go. I'm glad we had this time of confession together. Um, um, this is, so uh, like Adam said, we're going through uh, the book of Genesis, and it's really cool that it does kind of coincide right now with this Advent season, um, because what's really fascinating, and then uh, also, in case you guys are wondering, we do uh, Snowbird, which is, uh, you know, the place that we're all right now, that we're all at right now, who lets us uh, worship here. Uh, we have an Advent guide. If you want to go through, it goes through the month of December. And I'm going to talk to Joseph about sending out in the email a link to it. But what's really fascinating is as we as we as we look through this Advent season, it really goes along with the last couple chapters of Genesis. The last couple of chapters of Genesis are just kind of bringing everything together. And what's crazy is that what we see in these last couple chapters is conversations taking place with these patriarchs and these blessings that are given where we're able to really step back and realize that God is completely sovereign in all of history. And what I mean by that is that sovereign means that he's the king. He's the king and he's in charge of everything. And what's so amazing is that his scripture will talk about how God is so much higher than we are and so his ways of doing things are higher than ours. And, and I mean, even tonight, so far tonight, we've been reminded of these things. Like we, we sang a song about how God is sovereign over us and quoted uh, Romans 8:28. like even what the enemy means for evil, God turns for our good. And what we, we're gonna see in the next couple chapters of Genesis is that God takes our sin and works it according to his good purpose. And that God is always working, even when it seems like, oh, we've messed up his plan that God is always working. And that, you know, I think about when I used to, when me and the boys, my, I've got three boys um, who, if you're familiar around here, you've seen them, the most well-behaved children on the planet. Um, we, uh, <laughs> when we were, we went through the book of Genesis together a couple years ago, and it's always, you, you think, okay, how do I explain all of these stories to little kids, you know? Like, I want them to learn from it. And, pretty much every story we would go through, and if you've been paying attention through our study in Genesis, you, you get to the point where it's like, okay, what do we learn from this? Well, we can learn that God is good and we can trust him. And that's what we're gonna even see tonight. It, it's so simple, right? God is good and we can trust him. And now what's really fascinating about that is that that only works if there's kind of a third point, and that is that God's in complete control, right? I mean, you think about what, what, what Sean just read about. When we look at Advent season and the way that God has worked in the Old Testament to bring about Jesus, like God is working in ways that we would have never expected. That's what we're gonna see tonight. We're gonna see tonight where God is choosing the younger son to have priority over the older son. It's completely contrary to that culture. Right, but that's the way God works. I mean, we believe, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you, need to, you understand that we believe crazy things. Right, you guys, I'm, what Sean just shared, I mean, we're talking about, we believe that the creator of the universe became a person 
and that he came to serve us by dying in our place. Right, that's crazy. But in God's way of thinking, man, it's just perfect and beautiful, right? Because he accomplished something that we could never do. All right, and so when we're, we're gonna go through, we're going through Genesis chapter 48. What I wanna do is I wanna read through the whole chapter, it's 22 verses, and we're gonna read through it and then we're gonna break it into three sections where we're gonna just kinda make some comments on each section as we go through it, looking back at, so we're seeing that this is kind of a fulfillment, right? You guys know that we're in the, we're in the, the tail end of the life of Joseph. Remember how as we've gone through um, the book of Genesis, it's kind of been narrowing down um, God's chosen people and now we've got God's people who are here going into Egypt, which this is a fulfillment of a prophecy that God had made to Abraham. Again, something we would have never thought of. We would have never thought, oh, I'm gonna make this nation great. I know, I'll create a famine and have them be enslaved and then keep them there for 400 years and make them into a great nation. We would have never thought of that. That's the way that God is working. So what I wanna do, we'll read through all of the chapter, go through three different sections, and then I wanna talk about what we can learn from this passage. And what we're, what, what, some of the things we're gonna learn is that God is good, and we can trust him, and that he is in complete control, all right? So let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 48. This is God's word. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Oh, it's confusing. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Remember, this was several weeks ago, but it, it all, he, the scripture will always go back and forth calling him either Jacob or Israel. So it says, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a company of peoples and give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and, and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right and he brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. 
and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a people, and he shall shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. All right, so here we are. This is a really interesting situation, right? You've got, uh, he is on his deathbed. Jacob is on his deathbed, right? And he's giving these blessings. We know that this is is happening after uh, the last section where he had made him promise to bury his bones, um, not in Egypt, but in Canaan, all right? And so he's coming to the end of his life. and And he right now, we think that he's 147 years old, which is quite old, all right? And when he calls Joseph, Joseph goes to him with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it looks like he knows that something's about to happen because he's coming there with his sons, right? It looks, he, I think he knows that something's, something's happening, he's gonna give him some sort of blessing, right? So he's 147 years old, Joseph is probably in his mid-50s, all right, and what's confusing because of the way that some of the language is used here, which we'll talk about, it looks like um, Manasseh and Ephraim are probably in their early 20s-ish, all right, because we know that Joseph has been um, kind of ruling for about 17 years, and Jacob says that he had them before he came to him in Egypt. So we think that it's, we think that it's somewhere in that time, maybe they're in their late teens, but they're around 20, all right? So there we go, we don't know exactly. So they're at about 20, and it's interesting because chapter 48 is set apart because in chapter 49, which we'll get to next week, he blesses, he has a blessing for each one of his sons. And it's more than just a blessing. It's like he is, God is using him to like prophesy concerning each one of his sons. Now this is, this is something that is really unique in the patriarchs of the Old Testament because remember in the Old Testament, God, like even when Jacob received his blessing, right, there, it looked like it was an accident, like he shouldn't have gotten that, but his father said, oh no, I've already given it to him because God worked in a special way through these blessings. And again, we'll get to see that next week, especially because it's gonna affect our study in Advent as well. So we see this happening. He comes in there and what he's doing is he is setting Joseph off as, as the, he's giving him the, the position of the firstborn and he's doing that by giving him a double portion. So he's adopting his two grandsons as, and he's saying that his two grandsons are now gonna be his children. Because if you read through this, it, it seems weird in our culture for a granddad to say, those two kids of yours, they're mine, right? It seems like, wait, you're stealing my kids from me? But no, this was a way of honoring them. He's saying, oh, you are getting a double portion 
of my inheritance, I am gonna make each of your sons. And he, he says, I'm gonna make them like Reuben and Simeon, who were the two oldest. So he's, he's actually, he's setting him off. And this is what's really confusing, and this is where if you'd wanted to go down a really crazy rabbit hole, if you wanted to look at the way that the 12 tribes are talked about throughout scripture, because it's very confusing, because there's really 13 tribes now, right? So when these are, the, the tribe of Joseph has become, the, becomes the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, but then there's times where they will label the 12 tribes where they'll leave out Levi, and a lot of times they'll leave out, leave out Levi, that was tough, um, because he doesn't get an allotment of land because he was, the Levi was the tribe of the priests. But then there's other times where Joseph and Manasseh make it in there. It's just confusing, but know this, this is an honor that God is giving to Manasseh and Ephraim because they are now seen in the 12 tribes. That's huge. And so I think the first thing that we see is there's, a, there's two parallels in this, in this passage. One is gonna be in Genesis 27, and then we'll see in Genesis 28. In Genesis 27, that's when Isaac blesses Jacob. And let's look at some of the similarities. Uh, we should have this on the screen, Genesis 27. I'm gonna read one through three, one through four. When Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so they could not see. I mean, this is the exact same language. He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. And he said, behold, I'm old and do not know the day of my death. Now, when, now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bone, go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. This is the same thing that happens, only you've got, you've got an old man who can barely see and he's calling his son to come bless him. Well, in Genesis 27, this is Isaac wanting to bless his oldest, Esau. And, that's, and so what we're seeing in uh, chapter 49 is now um, Jacob is calling together, calling his son and bringing his two sons so that he can bless them. And what we're gonna see is in both of these situations, the father blesses the younger over the older. But in the first one, it's not intentional on the father's part, right? Because you remember, this is when Rebecca overhears what's happening and she goes and she gets um, and she goes and gets Jacob and says, okay, your, brother, your brother's getting ready to, to get this blessing, but I want you to have it instead because that was, because he was her favorite son. See, this is where you shouldn't have favorite kids. It just causes drama. But what's so interesting is that Jacob tricked his dad into getting this blessing, but that's what God wanted. It's really crazy. Now, it, am I saying, oh, it's good that they sinned and they were deceptive? No, but what happened is that God had already said in Genesis 25, the younger is gonna serve the older, and God used Jacob's deception to bring about his purpose. And I think that's really interesting. When you read, if you read in Genesis 25, as soon as Jacob realizes that, wait, Jacob, no, Isaac realizes that he'd blessed He'd, he'd blessed Jacob instead of Esau. It says he trembled, like he was freaking out. And I think it's because he knew that God was gonna bless the younger over the older. And he was gonna go ahead and bless the older anyway. And God worked it out. Isn't that crazy? And so when we see in this situation, we see that this time 
He's in, and, and it's so crazy because he stole his older brother's inheritance. He tricked him. He tricked him, and Esau points it out. He'll say, he tricked me these two times. So he did. He tricked him twice. And still, when it comes time for him to bless his kids, he chooses these grandsons and elevates them and then elevates the younger over the older. Isn't that fascinating? And another, another parallel we can see is in Genesis 28. Remember in Genesis 28, and this is just, I'm gonna read this. This is God blessing Jacob. You guys all remember this. This is the Jacob's ladder dream where God blesses him. I'm gonna read it all because he only quotes part of it. And this is uh, Genesis 28, 12 through 15. It says, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder um, set up on the earth, and the top of it reached the heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. Remember when we see those capital letters, a Lord, he's using that covenant name. He says, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised to you. Okay, so what's interesting is when, we, when you read through this and Jacob mentions this, he mentions this promise. Now, when with, for us, we have a different mindset. Our, our mindset is so individualistic. You guys realize that we, you know, for some of you, maybe over Thanksgiving, you're like, yes, and we're, we're meeting together as a family, almost like a clan of families together, and you have like, maybe you experience some sort of like family unity and pride or whatever, but we don't think in the same way that they thought when it comes to families, especially when you have patriarchs of these families that God has made to them, because when we think of somebody making a promise to you, they're making it to you individually, right? Now, if we take that type of mindset and apply it to this, this seems confusing because God told, God told Jacob, right? He said, I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. I'm bringing you back to the land. And where we get to our text tonight, Jacob is in Egypt and he is dying in Egypt. Isn't that interesting? Okay, what do we do with that? Great question. That's what we're gonna talk about. So let me, we're, we're gonna jump in right now. I'm gonna, we're gonna go um, Genesis 48. That's where we are. We're, I'm gonna look through one through seven. It says, it's really interesting what happens. When he calls him to him, it's like he knows that this is, he's getting ready to die. So he goes there with his two sons, right? And then you see that, that Israel is in, he's in bed and he summons all of his strength so that he can get up and he can, he can see his son. So we know it's at the end of his life, right? Says he's come to you and he, then he repeats that. He, 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 he sits up and he says to him, this is what God has promised to me. God has made these promises. And even if you read through those original promises, we know that those couldn't just be for, for Jacob himself, right? It says he's gonna spread out everywhere, north, south, east, west, blessing the whole world. It's, it's obviously not just for him. And he saw that. He saw this was for him and for his family. But what's crazy is that he's only gonna get to experience part of it, right? 
He says, this look at what God has said to me. I'm gonna make you fruitful, multiply you. I'll make you a company of peoples and give this land to you. And he's repeating all of these covenant promises because he's getting ready to show Joseph his place in that covenant and he's bringing Ephraim and Manasseh into that covenant with him. You see that? He knows that God has made this covenant with my, with my family, with my offspring, with my seed. And so he's now, he's got his son, he's bringing him into it, and then he's lifting up his grandsons, bringing them into this covenant that he has with them. It says this, um, yep, yeah, so he's bringing them into the 12 tribes, and then he does so, a couple things. One, he, uh, when he reminds them of his covenant, he's, I think what he's trying to do is he's telling them that he's bringing him into it, that God j- didn't just make this with me, but you can trust that God is giving this to you. That's huge. And then he says, uh, he tells him he's given him a double portion. He's given those, those are his sons, and his sons are now mine. They've been elevated. They are gonna be numbered with their brothers, and we see that happening, right? And then what's really interesting is that he reminds him of his mom. Do you guys notice that? Isn't this really fascinating? Okay, a couple things. He says, um, he says, you have these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are, and then the children that you have after them, they're yours. Okay, verse seven. As for me, when I came from Padan, to, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way and there was still some distance to go before Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath that is in Bethlehem. A couple things I think he's pointing out here is he's mentioning geography several times, right? He says, these are the two kids that were born to you in Egypt, right? But God is giving us that land over there. And then he reminds them of Rachel. He says, when I, I was so sorrowful because Rachel died and she had, uh, she had a premature death. Remember, she died in childbirth with Joseph's younger brother. And I think he's reminding him of that situation for two reasons. One is because she died and she was buried in Canaan, in the land that God had given to him. So you need to remember that's your land over there. She died and I loved her. She was so close to me. And I think also is he's reminding of Rachel because Rachel wasn't able to have any more children. And so what, what he's doing is he's now increasing Rachel's tribes in the inheritance by giving, by elevating um, Ephraim and Manasseh, right? And it's, what's interesting is the way that he talks about it is, you know, in, the, in scripture, a lot of times they will label people in order of like priority, right? So you, you, when you read through um, uh, lineages and stuff, it'll always mention the oldest one first. And look at when in verse, uh, in verse one, he says, behold, he brings with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. All right, interesting. And then when, when he, when, when now Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, there we go. When Jacob mentions them, he mentions Ephraim and Manasseh. Isn't that fascinating? He's already um, elevating Ephraim above Manasseh. He comes in and says, these are my kids, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he goes, oh, and I'm gonna bless Ephraim and Manasseh. And if you've ever read through the Old Testament a bunch, when you hear those two names, Ephraim's supposed to go first. All right, so then, so I think he's reminding them of that, and he's reminding him that he's not supposed to be in Egypt. He's supposed to be in Canaan. That's the promised land. That's what's been given to him. That's where he needs to have this hope. All right, so then it goes on. And in verse eight, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? 
Isn't that confusing? He's already mentioned his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. And I think the reason for this is because this, there, this is a real formal adoption ceremony. That's what's happening here. You know, it's like um, if you go to a wedding, which um, we've all been to a bunch of weddings. And if you hang around here long, you're gonna be at a ton of weddings. And you know, I've done weddings and you know, it's always funny that couples want to do things pretty formally a lot of times and so you ask questions. Like for instance, when the, when the bride comes down, the officiant will always say, who gives this woman to marry this man? And most likely none of us are in the crowd thinking, what? <laughs> he, he doesn't even know who that is. That's crazy, you know? He, he's probably met the bride's dad before. Probably, maybe that day, most likely the day before, right? He's, no one honestly thinks the official is there going, who's this guy with the bride? He's not thinking that. No, but it's part of the ceremony, right? And who gives? And sometimes they'll be like, and what, what symbol are you going to use to whatever, display your love? Oh, we have these rings, great, you know? So, Right, the, it's, this is part of the ceremony, and I think that's what's happening. He is almost blind, but I think he's saying, who are these, and so that he can respond. These are, my, these are my sons, and he gives glory to God. Do you see that? He says, these are my sons that God has given me here. Again, he's mentioning the blessing of God, and he gave them to him where? In Egypt, right, because that's where God has led him. And then, and then he goes on and says his eyes were dim and he can't see. And, he, and so he says, it was, with just irony, again, he's now giving glory to God. He says, I never expected to see your face, right? Again, I never accept, expected to see your face because I thought you were dead. Like, this is what we learned about, we talked about last week, right? Like, I thought you were dead and now I can see you. I never thought I would see you and now I've been able to see you and your offspring, right? We, you, you, have to, you have to realize, man, he's talking about God's faithfulness to what he's done and then it gets a little weird because it says, it talks about on the, he's on his knees. It says, then Joseph removed them from his knees. It makes you think, oh, these are babies. But probably what's happening is that imagine I don't know if you guys have ever been around someone who is in the final stages of their life where you have to remind them who you are and you kind of go up to them and you put your hand on them. They've probably imagined them reaching down and they've just got their hands on his knee. He's set up in bed, putting their hands on his knee and he reaches and, and so he's like, and who are these? And, and it says, man, he says, these are my sons and he hugs them and he kisses them and then he removes them from their knees and then he does something that's really fascinating, especially if you try to pay attention to get into Joseph's mind right? Joseph, who has been the most powerful man in the world for the past 15 plus years. Most powerful man in the world, right? And what's he do? He bows down to his father. Isn't that interesting? You remember when, when Pharaoh exalted him, he says, oh, people are going to bow down before you. Here's my ring. They're going to the, put you in these carriages. They're going to draw you around. No one is more powerful than you. And what's he do? He bows down. And it's really interesting because when he bows down, we're seeing, okay, God is greater than Egypt. God is greater than Egypt. God is greater than Pharaoh. 
There's nobody else that, this, that Joseph would bow down to, but he bows down before his father. And then what's, it's really interesting. So he reaches out, and again, this is where the, the, his dad is intentionally, because he's, he's setting it up. He's like, okay, he's, he's, he can barely see. I'm gonna put Ephraim over here, put Manasseh over here, and he's gonna reach his right hand out to give the greater blessing to Manasseh. And in a weird twist of irony, because we didn't see this coming, he switches his hands over and he blesses them. And, if, and it's crazy. And then he says, look at what he says. He just praises God. Look, look at the, the things that he says about, about God. He says, he says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Like talking about he, he lived, they walked before him. And this is it's that, it's that picture of a shepherd, right? He says, it says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, life long to this day, he's, he's calling God his shepherd. And remember, they're a family of shepherds. That's what they do. And he said that just like a shepherd would guide and lead the sheep, so my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, have walked before, have lived in the face of God, before the face of God, and, and he has been my shepherd all these life long. He's not only has been my shepherd, but he's redeemed me from all evil. He saved me. He has rescued me. So we see, like even in these pictures, right? For, the, for us, that's all so familiar because we think of, of Psalm 23. We think of the Lord as our shepherd too, right? That he provides, he gives provision. He gives us food. He gives us safety. He gives us righteousness. He gives us salvation, and that's what he's doing. He's calling on God. The God has done this for me. And now he says, let his, bless the boys, which I love. Just bless the boys. And he says, let my name be carried on in them. And not just my name, but of Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude. Multitude is, that's from, uh, that's from chapter 28. He's realizing right now, he's saying this blessing onto his grandsons and he's saying this is a fulfillment of what God has promised me. They are the fulfillment. God is using, they, they are in the covenant. They are the means that God is using to, to uh, fulfill his promise that he's made to them. Isn't that awesome? They're the ones who are gonna grow into a multitude, into a people who are gonna go north, south, east, and west. And again, remember, they're in Egypt, right? He's making these promises to, that are, he trusts God so much that he's saying these promises were given to me and I'm giving them to you and God's gonna fulfill them. Not here, but there. And then it goes on. Um, let's see, he, yes, he says he's a shepherd and then he praises him for redeeming Israel and he's, he blesses the boys and in his blessing, he is adopting them. They are now his sons who are gonna have equal portions in his inheritance. They're gonna be numbered along with Reuben and Simeon. They are his kids, he's adopted them. What a cool picture, right? We're gonna go on some more. In uh, verse 17. Verse 17, this is the last section. I wanna wanna walk through this and then just look at some things that we can learn from this. Now, when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And and honestly, like, this is an honest mistake. He thinks his dad, I mean, his dad's 147 years old. He just, but he did this weird stretching thing. Why is he doing that? So he grabs it and he's like, oh no, this is pleasing him. He took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head and put it on Manasseh. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since the, this one is the firstborn. Put your right on his head. 
But his father refused and said, I know my son, I know. And he'll also become a great people. He'll also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them. And it says that they're gonna become, I mean, people are gonna say, like, may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh, and we see it happen. I mean, Ephraim becomes this huge tribe. Manasseh becomes a, this huge tribe, right? It's really interesting. And so he put Ephraim before Manasseh, and then look, he, he said to Joseph, this is awesome. He says, behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you, and he will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Okay, stop for a second. He says, I'm about to die, but God's gonna be with you. If you've, uh, one of the things that we see, especially in the life of Joseph, especially in Joseph's life, but all throughout Genesis so far, what, what set the patriarchs apart was God was with them. Remember, we see it in Joseph, like he gets sold into slavery, and then there's just this little line, but God was with him, right? And what happens? Oh, well, he gets, he gets to this guy's house, and he succeeds, and then he goes to jail, and it says, but God was with him. Right, God was with him. And so he then succeeds in jail, runs the jail, right? And then there's these dreams, and then Pharaoh says, God is with you, right? Because they can see it. Because when we read through the history of salvation, it is all about God being with his people. If you're gonna summarize the Bible, it's God being with his people. We see they're, they're with, he's, with, he's with his people in, in Eden and then sent enters into the world and then he's finding ways to be with them. He's got, we have the tabernacle, which we're getting ready to go into, and then the temple, which will be after that. And then in John 1, we see that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among them. Right? This is, this is Advent. We gotta look at it. And that the, the word that's used to say it dwelt among them is the same word that was translated as tabernacle. He tabernacled with his people. This is God wants to be with his people. That's what the history of salvation is about. And so he's promising, I'm gonna die. Yeah, he's almost 150, but God will be with you. Man, it's awesome. And then look at what he says. This is so interesting. He says, moreover, Okay, let's just time out for a second. Um, Joseph is the richest man in the world, right? I mean, he has single-handedly built up Egypt as an empire. Pharaoh has said, you are in charge of everything. And remember what happened? It's like they, there was a famine, and so the people of Israel, I mean, the people of Egypt were like, give us food, and he said, give me your money. So they gave him all their money. And then, like, they come back, like, we're out of money. And he said, well, give me all your stuff and said, okay, here's all our stuff, our land, everything. And then they wanted more food, and they came back, and he said, well, give me you. And this is what Joseph has orchestrated, right? Do you think that Joseph, in this position where everybody he sees has to bow down to him, is super interested? Oh, and here's a piece of land a couple hundred miles away over there. Why would that be appealing to him? It's appealing to him because that's the sign of God's covenant faithfulness, right? That's his real home. 
You see that? And so his father is saying, and I've got this one specific piece of land, which we think, we don't exactly know where it is. There's some weird confusion. You could do a rabbit hole here also, but we think it's probably near Shechem, maybe, but we know that it's something that he won with his sword and with his bow. But what's crazy, he won it, but now where does he live? He lives in Egypt. But that property is his. Why is that his? Because God gave it to him and he's gonna take that and he's giving it to his son. And, we, and he's saying here, yes, you're in Egypt. You're in Egypt right now. But that's your home. Where your mom's buried, that's your home. Where God promised that I was gonna go back to, that's yours. In fact, there's this one piece that's yours. It belongs to your family. And if it is Shechem, it, does, it becomes part of the Ephraim's territory. Isn't that crazy? Okay, now we have to time out for just a second. Because again, we think about this. It looks like God has failed. Why do I say it looks like God has failed? Because God told um, Jacob, he told Jacob, you're gonna come back to this land. And he just told Joseph, right? Says, um, you're gonna, this is your land. But then we know Joseph dies in Egypt. Jacob dies in Egypt and Joseph dies in Egypt. So did God lie? No, he didn't. That's what's crazy. Because they knew, here's a couple of things. They knew one, they understood that they were the representative of the covenant. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? They knew that they were the representative. God was making a covenant with them. And even in the original covenants, it's for your blessing, for your seed, for your offspring. Right? It's not just for them. It wasn't just for Abraham. It wasn't just for Isaac. It wasn't just for Jacob. It wasn't just for Joseph or Ephraim or Manasseh. It was for their family. So they knew they were representative and they also realized that if it didn't happen in their lifetime, it was still going to happen. This is where we really can learn from their faith. Right? We can learn from this. You know, because uh, to be honest, um, with Jacob especially, when we look through Jacob's life, he hasn't been the most exemplary role model, right? Wasn't a good brother, wasn't a good son, wasn't, was a confusing maybe employee. Anyway, but we know at the end of his life, I mean, he is, he's got a faith that's worth emulating. We know that because he is putting his faith in God's word. And if God's word, if it doesn't, if it doesn't come to pass in his lifetime, is he, he's not daunted by that. You realize? He's just like, oh, well this didn't happen to me, so who's it gonna happen to? Well, you're my son. God's gonna be faithful to his word. You can believe on it. Look in this, Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, uh, 11, uh, 13, read 13 through 22. It's, it, Hebrews 11 is so great. It talks about all of these patriarchs. And it says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, right? Again, in their concept, in the Old Testament mindset, they didn't necessarily think it had to happen in their lifetime. They understood themselves as if this was a made with their family and with their offspring and their offspring, right? But have they, having seen them, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Oh, I just love that. Seeking a homeland, right? You think homeland, that's where we are. No, 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 no. They were seeking their homeland. 
If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would, have, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named, he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, we'll see that next week, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Remember, the people who are reading this for the first time are on their way out of Egypt right? They're, they're on the road to the promised land. They've seen this fulfillment. Look at the faith that he had. We can learn from, from this faith, right? He, and look at it, it's summarizing this passage in, in, uh, in Hebrews, not just Jacob, but of, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. They realized that they were strangers, right? They were exiles. This wasn't their home, and so are we, Right? we need to realize that this is not our home. We are living in Egypt and we have a country that is far better. He has prepared for us a city that is way better than this. Um, I know you guys are all huge Keith Green fans. Keith Green, when he wrote the song, uh, he talked about how God's been working on on heaven 2,000 years. And if you have the live version, which I'm sure you all do on some sort of album somewhere, he says, he said, man, if he created everything here in seven days and he's been working on heaven 2,000 years, he said, he said, we've been living in a garbage can. It's not true. This is wonderful. It's awesome. I love it. But you think comparatively what God has, I mean, we're talking about Joseph who had everything the world could have offered and he was looking for a better city, somewhere better. And the reason why it's better is because that's where God lives. It's better because Jesus is there, right? So we, he says they were looking forward to their real homeland, right? God has prepared for them a city and for us that we could not imagine the, the blessings that we have in Christ. And we, we have been given this. So we need, to, we need to look at their faith. We need to learn from their faith. And then we need to step back and recognize God's sovereignty in all of this, right? Because God chose Abraham out of just, out of the world. He just picked Abraham. Had Abraham done anything? Nope. And then he chooses Isaac over Esau. He just chooses before they were born. Was it because of something that Isaac did or something Esau did poorly? Nope. That's, that's the way he works. He's, and he's, he's, he chose, he chose him. He chose um, he chose Jacob over Esau when neither of them had done anything. He chose Ephraim over Manasseh. Why? Because of God's work in choosing. He just, that's what he did. That's what he did. And then, this, is, this makes sense because he chose you and he chose me. And scripture says not, not just because we hadn't done anything good or bad, but it says because when we were his enemies, when we were hostile to him, he saved us. Right? And we can see that this is the way God works. God often chooses the younger brother. He does. Because this is the way the world was working, and he, cho- he chooses a different way. 
Hey, that's, he, cho- he chooses the things that are weak, the things that are foolish, to shame the wise. That's what God does. He, God is always working in unlooked for ways, right? But we see it, and what's crazy is that he calls the shots. That's what you see as we, as we work through this season of Advent. He's, he's gonna say stuff like, I'm gonna work through this person. You're like, well, how? Oh, that's how, I see. And, that, and he just continues to do so to the point where he works through a virgin girl to have a baby who becomes the savior of the world. That's the way God works. And we need to, we need to step back and we need to say, man, he, he's working this way and he can work through us even though we are failing, right? Uh, there's a pastor I love to listen to. He says that God writes straight with crooked lines. I love it. Because if this is God's plan, he's gonna accomplish it and he's gonna use people like us to do it. And we can step back and we can give him the praise, we can give him the glory. Then we need to realize that regardless of what you are going through, that you have a real hope. And that's awesome. I mean, there are, especially as we've gone through Genesis, right, we've seen really bad things, just real bad, sin. Bad sin happens. And God works through it. Man, and for us, you have a city waiting for you. If you're in Christ, you have a city waiting for you that blows this place out of the water. If you're not in Christ, you need to understand that this world will never satisfy you. I mean, all of the things that the world can offer pale in comparison to an inheritance that God has for you. And uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'll close with that in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter one says that, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, listen to this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading and kept in heaven for you. So who's keeping this? God is keeping an inheritance for you that can't fade away, that nothing can happen. It can't be corrupted. It's yours. You have that. It says, for, by, for those of us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, right? Because that's how it, that, for a little while, what's happening, you, your struggle with, with doubt, with, with sin, with greed, with pride, with lust, with envy, those are, those are real struggles and they're gonna happen for a little while. And after a little while, it says, it says you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, made it, may be found a result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's, you have an eternal inheritance which far surpasses this little while of struggle, of temptation, of suffering, right? And that what we need to understand is this world is not our home. If you are in Christ, this isn't your home. This is Egypt. 
And you know what? We need to live well. There's a passage in Jeremiah 29 that talks about how you need to pray for the city that you're in. You need to make homes. You need to love your neighbors. Yeah, but understand that this is our Egypt. This is our exile. And we've been called to something more than that. And not only that, but we've been called to call others. Right, that's huge. So you have a hope regardless of your situation, and you have the only hope that anyone else could ever imagine. The only thing that gives any salvation, we have that in Christ. Especially now, as we're going through the Advent season, as we're preparing for Christmas, what, a, what an amazing time to have these types of conversations. You've got it in front of you 24-7. Let's, let's put our hope and our faith in this city that we've been called to, in this inheritance we've been given, and let's draw others into that as well. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing to the Lord and worship. Father, we exalt you. We are so thankful for your word, for your kindness, for your grace towards us. Thank you that we can look and we can see that these imperfect saints that you have called before us and that we can learn from their faith in you. And I pray that we too will put our faith and our trust in you and that you'll help us to have a proper perspective that we will be looking forward to these eternal blessings that we have in you. I pray that you will give us comfort. I pray that you'll give us encouragement. God, if there, if there's, there are those here who are not your children, who have not been adopted into your family, I pray that they will, they will come to you in confession and repentance and that you will save them tonight. God, be with us now as we get to worship you, that we will continually put our faith in you and give you the praise, honor, and glory you deserve. In the name of Jesus, amen.